All right. Well, good evening. I want to I want to start on time tonight. Tonight, um, make sure we want to get going because uh, tonight I've got to slip out. We have dinner with the pastor tonight, which is um, the way um, kind of people join our church now. And um, I, had a, I had a long conversation to, uh, this this week with a. Uh, a guy that I've been in his life for a while. Uh, he's pastoring a church in Oklahoma City. And uh, their bylaws, they, they are still doing, according to their bylaws, for someone to join our their church, they bring them down front and vote on them like we all saw. And if you've been in Baptist life for a long time, that's how we used to do things. You'd Someone would come and they'd walk down the aisle and then from the time before the service ended, uh, or the invitation ended to the service ending, you were presenting them before the church, and you'd vote on them and all those things. And, uh, and I was talking to him. I said, you know, that's a little bit irresponsible to do that these days. I mean, maybe you, I mean, I'm not sure that we did this in well in the 70s either, but, but a long time ago, most people understood what you believed if you were a Baptist. We live in this Internet generation now, and I've found people that will say, I believe in Jesus, and I, I love Jesus, but I also think reincarnation is awesome. And, and I, uh, you know, you have this hodgepodge of beliefs because we're much more global than we used to be. And so it's irresponsible to, to not sit down with somebody and say, here's what we believe as a church. And, and you can't do that from the time an invitation happens to the end of a service. You just... You can't do that. And so we, we need more time. And so we have this uh, two-week process that we've kind of come, come into with dinner with the pastor where we, we can actually talk through uh, in a couple of weeks what we believe and what, uh, what our doctrine is and what our, what we, where we stand. And that's, that's pretty important. So I'm going to slip out uh, after this first part and... Uh, and then Rob's going to finish this up tonight. But if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Acts chapter 17. And we, we've looked at this uh, on Sundays or just a few months ago, actually, in this Acts chapter 17. And, um, and I'm, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in this passage, just kind of as a reminder of Acts 17 verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. On arrival, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. The people here, verse 11, were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, since they welcomed the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. Now, the Bereans were intriguing people, and, and they really are held up as kind of an example for us, because when Paul went in to teach them, they were more open-minded, and what they did is they went to search the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. And, um, and you know, what, they, what were they doing there? They were doing theology, and uh, they, were, they were examining um, this teaching with 
what the word said, what the law said, what the Old Testament said. And, and, and you know, this is, this is important because, like I said last week, all of us are theologians. And this, these kind of studies cause some to kind of go, kind of get a little skeptical. I even had a, there's a pastor in town, and I'm not going to say uh, what church he is, he's in, but, uh, but he and I were in a discussion uh, about our men's group. I was leaving Thursday morning one day, and I ran into him. He's like, hey, what's going on here? And I told him that we were, we had just been wrestling through a theological discussion. This men's group at Panera Bread that meets, and sometimes we get into some theological discussions. Sometimes it's opinionated, right? Every time. Um, but that's good. It's good to wrestle through those. We don't always agree when we're in there, but that's okay. Um, we wrestle through some of these things. And, th- and this guy was like, he's a pastor in town. He was like, you know, we, we try not to get into theology. And I was like, huh, well, you might ought to rethink that, you know, in a loving way. I was like, you know, uh, it's, it's pretty important because if you don't, um, if you don't think about what you believe, uh, you could get into bad theology. Like, for instance, the, like, like everyone's a theologian. The antidote to bad theology is what? Good. Good theology, right? Like, like you want to have good theology. I mean, because everyone's a theologian, and so you, you want to make sure that you're, we're doing good theology. So last week, just as a reminder... We gave those characteristics of theology. We said folk theology. Those are those, those ideas that really, they're just kind of, they don't have a basis to them, a real basis. That's not good. We ought to, we ought to evaluate whether or not we are buying into folk theology. Then, then we, we talked about um, the lay theology, which is good. That's a good form of theology when you are starting to... Um, develop a basis for what you have versus just what you've always learned or what you've always been taught. Lay theology is a good step. Then you have ministerial theology, which is what our, our Sunday school teachers do, where they, they are communicating theological beliefs in an organized way. And then professional theology, which is what we're doing tonight. Um, professional theology, where we're teaching uh, how to do it. And, and, and then... A negative, another negative on that spectrum that we said is academic theology. And those are those academics that are, are just talking about things of God without really evaluating uh, whether they're going to impact their life. And, and so where we need to live on a daily basis is that lay theology, that ministerial theology, and professional theology. We talked about that last week. You can, And by the way, these classes are online. And so you can go back and listen to them, or if you missed one, you can catch up. But, um, but I've got a definition here in your notes. Christian theology, and let's think about this, is reflecting on and articulating revealed God-centered beliefs and practices producing a lifestyle that glorifies God. Now, now that's a complex definition. It's one you gotta, you got to think about, but let's, let's just dissect it a minute. We are Christians, and it's important for us to understand that we, are, we need to do Christian theology, a Christian view of God. Now, 
that means we're going to reflect on, we're going to think about, we're going to be able to articulate these revealed God-centered beliefs. Now, 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 God has revealed himself to us. So this is not something we've made up. God has revealed himself to us, and so we're going to be able to reflect on and articulate these revealed God-centered beliefs and practices that produces a lifestyle that glorifies God. Now, we've got to understand from the very beginning of doing good theology is so important, and it's been important from the very beginning since the apostles. Because remember, uh, from the very beginning, uh, the book of 1 John, for instance, is John, the apostle's response to bad theology, docetism, this idea that uh, Jesus was, he only appeared human. He really wasn't human. So John said, wait a minute, time out. This is a bad thought that I've got to come against and say, let's do some good theology. So we need to do the same, and, and this is very important. But I want you to understand as we dive into these theological truths about God, theology doesn't invent beliefs. We're not inventing beliefs, but we're, we're finding beliefs that are present among Christians throughout history, and we're going to examine them. So we're not coming up with these ideas. What we've done is we found these ideas in the Word of God, and that's what we're bringing to the surface. So um, so this is the point of theology. The two tasks of theology, I think, are important. Um, the first task is a critical task. The second task is a constructive task. So this is what we're working on. This is what, this is what I want to challenge you to do. Now, let me explain this. The critical task of theology is this, to examine beliefs and teachings about God, ourselves, and the world in light of the biblical message. So this is important because what we are doing is taking the biblical message and we're examining God. We're examining ourselves. We're examining the world. And, and this, is, this is why I say all the time that whenever we find a belief in Scripture that we, or a belief that we hold, you may have a belief that you hold passionately, and if you ever discover that belief is contrary to Scripture, then you're compelled to line up with Scripture, whether it's a belief about God, a belief about yourself, a belief about the world. We are aligning with the biblical message. That's good Christian theology. Um, and now if we ever have a practice that's that's outside of the biblical message. We're compelled to line up with the biblical message. This is important. Now, um, the, and, and part of the critical task of theology is to evaluate our thoughts about God, to evaluate our thoughts about ourselves, to evaluate our thoughts about the world, and make sure they line up with the Bible, with the biblical message. And, and that's very important. Because my, the danger of my pastor friend in town who said, oh, you know, we don't need that theology. Well, if you take that practice, you could, you could walk down a road in your church where you don't line up with the biblical message. That's pretty dangerous, right? Um, that's not something we should be able to do. So we've got to be able to do the critical task of, of theology where we are evaluating our beliefs and our practices, making sure 
that this is important. Another critical task of theology is to divide valid Christian beliefs into categories based on importance. Okay, so we've got to be able to look at these beliefs and let's divide them and say, okay, what is most important? Like Rob gave you a word last week and, and asked a really good question, the word dogma. Remember? And he said, is that good or bad? Most of the time we think, oh, dogma is bad. That sounds bad. But dogma is pretty important. Dogma really is the, the beliefs that are essential to the gospel. And so we, we have beliefs that we can determine, okay, as we listen to someone's belief, that's totally outside the, the, the camp. Okay, you're not Christian because of that belief. And we've got to be able to, to understand the dogma, those, those essential beliefs. Uh, and that's an important thing. Uh, a, third, a, a second category that's important is doctrine. Those are, are important beliefs, but they're not necessarily outside the camp. So we've got to understand our doctrine. Like uh, there are, I have several friends. I didn't go this morning, but we have a prayer time on Wednesday with pastors all over this area. And uh, there's usually about 15, 10 to 15 pastors that go. And we kind of come from different doctrines. And um, we just don't fight about them when we go pray. We go pray. And that's something we're trying to do. We don't fight about those different doctrines. But, but there are some doctrines that naturally, naturally divide us. Now, I can look at those guys and say, man, we're going to go pray, pray together. Now, I choose not to go to these prayer services that are interfaith prayer services. I don't go to those as a pastor. I get invited sometimes to those. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to stand next to a, a Muslim and pray together, you know? We're outside of the camps, you know? They don't pray to God. And, in my, and I'm not being mean. I'm just saying I don't, we're not in the same camp. And, uh, but I can go pray with these brothers even though we disagree doctrinally. So these, um, we divide these categories up into dogma, into, into doctrine, and then thirdly, in opinion. Okay, that's, a, that's, you know, it's interesting, but it's not essential to the faith. And we're going to have different opinions at times, you know. We're going to wrestle through different opinions. And we've got to be able to, when you, the critical task of theology is being able to discern what is dogma, what, are, what is doctrine, and what are opinions. And that's a critical task. That's one of the things we want our, our church to be able to do. We, we need... Everyone, everyone in our church needs to be able to do those things. That's a critical task of theology. A constructive task of theology is this. Um, and, and two tasks of theology, critical and constructive. Constructive is to unify the biblical teaching about God, ourselves, and the world with the calling to become and make disciples. Now, we need to be able to... Uh, we, we need to understand that what God has done with theology, what God has helped us do, is to become unified in our, in our understanding of his word and him, who he is. Because what is the Bible? It's the revelation of God to mankind. Now, as we see, good theology unifies us. But 
good theology also divides us, right? Okay, let me give you an example of how a danger that I see a lot of times in Baptist life or in Christians. You know, the, the Mormons come by our house. They're really nice. Oh, they're so, they're so nice. And they are. And we have, and I've had conversations with Mormons saying, you know, we're just like each other. And we're going, okay, well, let's, and we're not. Lorenzo Snow is a, a Mormon thinker that says this about God um, that, and, he, and I always have to think about this because he, his statement was, as man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. Now that's the core of Mormon theology. And they will say, oh, see, we're just alike. I'm like, whoa, time out. Because you come from a basis that as, God, as man is right now, God once was. It goes against what we understood last week, that God is what? Eternal, right? Okay, well, well, okay, we're, we're out of each other's camp here, right? And so we've got to understand that, that there are times that a proper understanding of God will divide us from somebody else. And, and so let's not buy in. Let's, let's know what we believe. I'm not just saying know what Mormons believe. You've got to know what we believe so that when we hear something that's false, you're able to go, that's not right. That's not right. It's like Mickey Maroney that I've told this story many times, who was one of my youth workers that was killed in the bombing in Oklahoma City. Um, and uh, Mickey looked at, he brought $100 bills, 10 $100 bills to a Sunday school class of 10th grade boys. And, um, and he said, one of them is real. And I'm, going, I'm getting out of here with the rest. He goes, but if you find it, you can have it. And none of them picked the right one. And they were like, how, Mickey, how did you know this? He goes, well, I've spent so much time studying the real thing that when I saw a false one, I said, oh, I know what that is. That's false. It's not true. And this is what we've got to become as, as leaders. This is my prayer. And, and, and those of us that are on staff, this is our prayer that we raise up a church that you know what you believe. You know what the Bible says. And and it's great accountability for us because when we get up and preach, I know we can't teach something that's false. And I don't want to, I want to be able to be accountable to a church that says, look, don't teach something that's false. I, I need, we need that. We need to sharpen one another. But part of that constructive task of theology is that we're unified in the biblical teaching about God, ourselves, the world, and the calling to become and make disciples of Christ. Uh, um, a second task of constructive theology, the, the constructive task of theology is to communicate biblical models so that both Christians and non-Christians can understand them. That um, we've got to be able to communicate our belief about God to a world, to people. Because as we become witnesses for Christ... Um, we need to be able to articulate our belief about God, our belief about salvation. We need to be able to do this. Now, um, here's what God has provided. And, I, and, and, and my, my task here is to kind of push you and sell you, if you will, on the why of theology. 
Why, why, is this, why is this mental sweat so important? And why should we uh, work hard to do this? Why should we be a church full of people who know how to think, who are like the Bereans, who are able to listen and go, okay, I know, let me search the scriptures to see if what you said is true. Um, I want you to see that God has provided the raw materials to construct theological understanding. And here's the raw materials. And I want you to notice something. I, I did this on purpose. I put, uh, I want you to see that these raw materials are all good, but they're not all equal, right? So you'll notice one's bigger, the other's not as big, and then the other one's smaller. These are in your notes that are, that hopefully you have those because um, uh, they're, they're not on the screen. But, God's provided the raw materials to, for us to use. The first tool, first raw material that we have is the biblical message. I mean, that's, that's what we have. That's what's one of our raw materials for us to understand who God is and what he's like. And, and this is the most important gift that we have because what is the Bible? The Bible is authoritative. The Bible is revelation of God uh, to us. And now the Bible's interesting because the Bible just doesn't give you a laundry list of theological uh, statements. The Bible's not a creed. Uh, the Bible's a story. It's a, it's a narrative. It's poetry. It's law. It's, it's proverbs. It's, it's, it's diverse, isn't it? The, the Bible's this narrative in many locations that, that you, you discover these theological truths. Now, when you think about uh, the Bible as revelation from God, I want you to recognize that the Bible is indispensable when it comes to our theological beliefs. That every one of our beliefs, we have got to be able to make sure that it is consistent with God's Word, with, with what we see in the Scripture. And, and when I think about the theology of our, of our church, I mean, in the theology that I teach, um, by golly, it better be biblical. <laughs> I better not be pulling something uh, that's not biblical. Because in the first place, um, I am very aware in my own life that the Bible tells me that I will be judged more harshly because I am called to preach and called to, to stand up and do this. So... I, I realize that, and, and because of my whole journey with death, that my day is going to end someday. And, uh, and when I stand before the Lord, um, you know, I'm saved by grace, not by my works. I tell you that. I'm grateful to just uh, be, be there, uh, be in heaven. I'm going to get to go to heaven because of what Jesus did in my life. He rescued me. Um, but the Bible talks about a judgment seat. And what we do matters. How we live matters, right? I mean, I'm going to stand before God and give an account. Now, it's not going to be whether or not I go to heaven or not. But, but I, want to, I want to honor the Lord. I want to hear those words, well done, don't you? I mean, I feel, I feel like we, we want to spur one another on so we all hear those words, well done. Because you're not going to give an account for my race. Um, but we should spur one another on to... Run this race well with perseverance. And, and so uh, we, we better be biblical. 
And the biblical message is one of those raw materials God's given for us. Now, now there's a second raw material, and I, I alluded to this last week, the theological heritage of the church. Do you know that's one of the raw materials we've been given to understand the things of God? Here's the, here's the thing that I, I see a danger or a mistake that Christians have made for a long time, and we have a tendency to make it sometimes, is we have a tendency to leap from the Apostle Paul all the way to 2019 and ignore everything else that took place in the history of the world. And we have that tendency sometimes to think, oh, well, you know, I had a guy, I preached his wedding, I love him deeply, and, and he, we argued the whole time in his marriage counseling that he's like, oh, we're just not like the, the, the early church. And so he literally... Like, he doesn't go to church at all because he wants to be like the early church. And what he's essentially saying is, yeah, everybody through history, they were, they were, they were dumb. They were, they were foolish. And I'm just going to be like the first century church. And um, bottom line is, we make mistakes in ignoring the, all the Christian history that has taken place. If we ignore that, that is a mistake. And one of the raw materials that we have is the theological heritage of the church. Because in that, we see pitfalls. We see landmines. We see, we see great things that, that were discovered about God. And if we ignore all those, um, that's like a, a, a child going, yeah, mom, dad, you don't know anything. I'll make my own mistakes. Okay, that's really dumb. You know, I'm grateful that I got to learn some things from my parents and from those that, that went before me, okay? And, um, and so it'd be like you air, air, airline guys, you guys that can fix everything on an airplane. It'd be like some new guy going, yeah, you guys are dumb. I'm going to do my own plane. And then after he crashes and winds, wakes up dead, you're like, yeah, that's really dumb. You should have learned from us, okay? Similar. Um, so raw materials is theological heritage of the church. Another raw material is, is life in our contemporary context. And this is important. We're called to connect with people. We're to understand life in our context. But let's not make that leap of ignoring, of just reading the Bible as Americans in suburban Owasso, or Tulsa in 2019. Um, though we need to understand how God speaks to Americans in Owasso, in Tulsa, in 2019. So this is the task of theology. This is why this is important. And um, Amber's out there going, get up there. So I got to go uh, upstairs for this dinner with the pastor. So Rob, you're up. Thank you so much. Do Man. we pray? Yeah, pray for us, Chris. Yeah, let's do it. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us insight. I'm so excited about this time to wrestle through your holiness. Father, give us um, eyes to see, ears to hear, and obedient hearts to follow you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Reminds me, uh, in part, the, the saying that I've heard before, that many people think that history started the day they were born. 
And that's, that's easy for us to do in our personal lives, and it's easy to do in the life of the church as well. Um, to, tonight, we are going to tackle the topic of holiness, and that is such a massive, massive topic, and it is one that um, all the others we can't relate to, but it's one that we can't relate to fully, but we are called to relate to. All right, we have never been called to relate to God's aseity. We've never been called to be self-existent like God is. We were never called to be a part of the Trinity, but we are called to be holy. And so this will be the first topic where we will look at one of God's attributes that actually has some relation to us. There is an action item, if you will, that goes along with this. And so while some of the other lessons may have tended to be a little bit more theoretical, uh, they're not because it's, it's bound in a person. But for us, this one will have an absolute application with it. So there is going to be a little bit of that struggle. But if you will, go to First uh, Peter and we will, we will take a look at chapter 1 in just a second. I'm going to write a number on the board, and we'll come back to this number in, in just a little while. But go to First Peter chapter 1. I know my markers are terrible and everyone complains about them. Maybe we should... Uh, we should, we should seek out a better one here. These are I try a different one every week, and they just seem to always be a little dull, so forgive that. Um, but that says 84%, so just for those who are wondering what in the world I just wrote up there. All right, so we are going to look at a couple of things. Um, the text we're going to really dive into is in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, and in, this is an interesting chapter because there is a lot of practical application right here. Um, but, but, it's, but it's hard to really get going uh, without this idea of what holiness is. However, let us, let us read this text and let it soak for just a little bit, and then we're going to come back to it. Um, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, starting in verse 13, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 17, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we're going to come back to this, and we're going to dive into this, but as I said, that there will be a practical application for us to, to glean from here. But when we think about holiness, I want to hear from you uh, just for a little bit. What, what comes to your mind when you think of the concept of holiness? What do you think of? Do what? Set apart. Okay, that's good. Yep. What else? Anything else? Clean. Chris Wall. Okay. Uh, that's on the recording. Chris Wall. Holy. Okay. Okay, so clean, set apart. What else? Is there anything else that you guys can think of? Do what? Light. Excellent. Okay, so we've got a comparative here. 
that's beautiful. You know, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I think sometimes when we, when we think of holiness, we do think of things um, that are clean, things that are, that are true or perfect. Uh, and there's an idea when we think about, and maybe someone can hunt me down a better marker. This is the only one I've got up here. But there is an idea of becoming. So when, when we say, this is something I want to become, what does, what does that mean? If, if, there's, if there's something I want to become, what does it mean for me right now? You're not there yet. Not there yet. Okay, so I am on my way, and I think I've got an army of people looking for markers. Thank you. <laughs> God shall provide. This one, ah. Oh. Oh, thank you, Stacy Cuscio, or whoever. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. Very good. Okay, the search is over. This is good. Okay, so um, let me rewrite this as well. So the idea of becoming means that you're not quite there. There's something lacking. There's, there's, there's what we could add is that there is another word we could say is there's potential. All right. This is sometimes funny. Uh, sometimes people, people will mean to give you a compliment, uh, but sometimes it doesn't come off quite correctly. But you have so much potential, right? And it's like, well, uh, okay. It means I'm not there yet, doesn't it? Um, in, in, in the life of a young preacher, uh, this is something I hear a lot. And don't stop. It's not wrong, but it sometimes, it sometimes hurts a little bit. But they'll say, they'll say, you get better all the time. And it's like, Okay, I have to accept that because there is progress. There is a movement, but there's a way in which you're meaning, uh, I'm better than I was and maybe you're just tolerating me. Okay, that's okay. But there's, there's this idea of becoming. There's an idea of potential. But if, if you have no potential and you just are, all right, so if we have this, this idea of potential versus perfect, now we are talking about a whole different category. So when we talk about the holiness of God, there is, there's, there's a rightness in, in, in thinking of good and clean and light and set apart. That's, those are all absolutely true. But there's also a part of this that we've got to look at that has to do with the idea of perfection. God is, by definition, perfect. There is no potential, there is no becoming, there is no room for him to continue to grow. Thank you so much. Got some extra colors. Perfect. Thank you, Darby. We are good shaped now. All right. So the idea, though, when we think of holiness, there's a little pause in us if we start to say, perfect? How am I going to be perfect? But there's a way in which that's right, but there's also a way in which it's going to be something we never actualize this side of heaven, okay? So just throw that out there. But let me throw out another, another idea here. Um, ability, okay? So responsibility. And then versus ability. Now, wh when we think about responsibility, there's, there's, there's a common phrase that is all around popular Christianity, and it's this idea that God will never give me more than I can handle. Have you ever heard that? Okay. 
or God would never ask me to do something that I couldn't do, right? Have you ever heard that? And already you're like, you, you think it's wrong, so I probably should disagree and agree with you, right? So d- d- does anyone disagree with me in saying that, that that's not true, that, that God actually will give you things you can't do? Do you believe that? In your own strength, do you believe that God will give you things you can't do? Because what does Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do? And as R.C. Sproul always says, that nothing isn't a little something. But sometimes we think like that. But there's a, there's a truth to that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So the premise stands that God will ask us to do things that we, in and of our own selves, cannot do. But here comes this, this tension here. When we start to wrestle with responsibility versus ability. And this hangs up people sometimes because we would say, God would never ask me to do something I can't do. But here's uh, an antinomy. There's a little bit of a, a, a paradox, a little bit of tension. Because all throughout Scripture, we see both and, don't we? We see that man is responsible, man should obey, man should, X, Y, Z, right? including what we're going to get to, be holy as I am holy. That's part of our responsibility, isn't it? Is obey God. As we've said before, the duty of man is to obey God. Are we able to? Not perfectly. Because we will always fail at some point. And, 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 and this is the, the whole idea of sanctification, but I don't really want to talk about sanctification too much right now um, because what we have to just set with is just this tension that there is responsibility and there's also a lack of ability on our own. That tension has to sit there. That tension has to rest. But when we think of God, the first thing we have to think of is that he is perfect. There is no becoming. And with this in mind, we start to look at the holiness of God. And so there's this concept of absolute perfection. And through this concept, if you will, it's kind of a lens that we see the rest of God's attributes, okay? So moral perfection is the lens by which we see all of God's other attributes. So let's go ahead and list off a couple of those. Um, what are some of God's attributes? You can throw those out. What are, what are some, of the, one of some of God's attributes? Love. Love, okay, good. What else? Doesn't change immutability. Okay, what else? Omnipotent, all right. So what does that word mean? All-powerful. So you got all those omnis, don't you? Um, yeah, omnipresent, omniscient, right? Omnibenevolent, which would be that all-good. So there's all of those different omnis that you could, you could write down and start to talk about. And the, the, the point, though, is that we've got to look at, that, at this truth that all of those are in light of his absolute perfection. So when we say that God is all-powerful, what's really scary about that if we don't include some of the other ones? Let's start with, he's all-powerful, and what if he's not all-good? What if he is not omnibenevolent? What do you have? That's a really scary situation, isn't it? What if he's all-knowing, but not all-good? I mean, you start, think, you start thinking of this super being who knows everything, who has all the power, 
and is illocal, meaning he's everywhere at all times, and if he's not good, that's really not good, right? Can you feel the weight of if that was true? So when we talk about the holiness of God, his moral perfection, his absolute perfection, is the lens through which we see all of his other attributes, that there is no becoming. So when we think of God and that he is good, he can't get any better. Do you get that? There's no potential for him to get better than he is. He is the absolute model of perfection. He is the root of morality. All that is moral, all that is good, is found in his being. It is grounded in him as the absolute being. And his goodness is the lens through which we see all of his other beautiful attributes. So we must stop and think about this when we think of the holiness of God. It's all throughout Scripture. There is a concept that is right to just look and think about his absolute perfection. And what did Jesus say whenever they, they were asking, um, asking Jesus to teach them to pray? What, what did Jesus say? Our Father who art in heaven, what's next? Hallowed be thy name. Okay, what, is, what, is, what, is that, what does that mean? It's kind of another way of saying, holy be your name. Set apart are you God. And we've talked about this before, that there is, there's a rightness to this acronym, and you can pray however you would like to, uh, within reason, but we, we've talked about this before. It's really good to start with adoration. Start your prayers with adoration. And part of adoration is not even thanking God for what he's done for you or what he's given you. Save that. Save that. Just purely admire him. Purely step back and say, you are perfect. You're not perfect because you've met my every need. That has nothing to do with your absolute perfection. You are perfect because that is you. Do you get that? So when we come to the Lord, we think of this concept of what is his perfect holiness. There is a rightness in starting our conversations with him with adoration, just pure admiring him. Then we can move on to talk about the other things, and boy, does it make sense if we're going to talk about the holiness of God when we pray to follow admiration with, what's the C? Does anyone remember what the C is? Confession. Why must we confess? We fall short, so there's a need. So there's already a comparison. Do you know, and, and I'll be honest with you, this is, I'm not as good at this as I should be. There's been periods in my life where I really followed this, and I can tell you when I was doing that, my prayers were sweeter than they possibly are right now. So I'm actually, right now I'm thinking about this, getting convicted. But let me tell you something. Your prayers will be so sweet when you go from adoration to confession, because part of what confession should include if we're doing it right is we're telling God exactly where we went wrong. You're not just simply saying, God, I'm sorry that I did some things and just be super general about it. You ought to tell God exactly where you went wrong. And you set that up by admiring his perfect holiness. And in him, there are no shadows, there is no change, there is no corruption, no deception, nothing there. But when we move to confession, it, it should be inspired by 
our admiration for him, that he is perfect and he is that model. We're not comparing ourselves to other people, are we? If you don't start confession with, Lord, I really messed up this week, but thank you that I'm not as bad as Leon. I know Leon, and I'm doing better. In Jesus' name, amen. You would never do that, would you? But sometimes, we, sometimes that's how we treat it. Why? Because we've got the wrong model. We've got the wrong comparison. We've got the wrong standard. The standard is the absolute perfection of God, which means that every single one of us will be completely crushed and humbled standing before this perfect being. I want to let John Piper tell us a little bit about um, the preciousness and value of God. When something is unique, it's really rare. It's absolutely rare. So I asked Noel on Friday night, my wife, <clears throat> why is gold used as the standard of our money? Why do we prize gold so highly? And she said, accurately, because it's rare. And I said, yeah, but there are fish. There are fish that are really rare. And she said, um, gold has some permanence. Fish rot gets smelly. They can't be the standard of anything, no matter how rare they are. I said, that's, that's right. So you got, you got rare and you got permanence. And I would add accessibility. There are rocks probably under this field so far down, way more rare than gold, but you can't get at them. And so they're useless. They're, they're no help to being the monetary standard at all. And they're fish in the bottom of the sea. Nobody's ever caught or even classified, and they're no use either. So you've got rare, you've got permanence, and you've got accessibility. And I think the uniqueness of God is all of that. He's the rarest of all beings. He has absolute permanence. In Jesus Christ, he's made himself accessible. And therefore, I draw this as my concluding definition. You allow me a definition of the indefinable. God is infinitely valuable. So here's my total definition. God's holiness is his infinite value as the absolutely unique, morally perfect, permanent person that he is and who by grace has made himself accessible. His infinite value as the absolutely unique, morally perfect, permanent person that he is. And now my prayer for the generation becomes not simply that you become a generation impassioned for, passionate for God's holiness, but that you become a generation passionate for God's supreme, infinite value. And that will sever the root of all Judas' joys. 
So love that idea that when we look at God and we truly recognize him for who he is, in part we are recognized that he is infinitely valuable. Um, you know what that does to, to you and I? When we talk about, and boy, I'm not going to open this can right now, but the sanctity of life, that whole thing that's stirring right now, when we look at where are our values coming from, I'm not saying moral values, but our actual worth, Remember week or uh, week one, we talked about. Um, I'm running out of space. That's how it used to be when I used to teach Sunday school. Um, we, when we talked about it, we talked about that there was a couple of spheres. One of those was anthropology, and off of that, then could spin theology and so on and so forth. But the queen of the sciences used to be theology, and then off of theology would come anthropology, meaning the study of men. And when we inverse that, we're getting rid of the unmovable, permanent standard of value. Because God is that standard by which we get our value. So when we say humans have intrinsic worth, it is grounded in Him. It is grounded in His being. And we could talk much more about that, but I want to have that in our hearts in our minds to think of this, that God is infinitely valuable. But what happens when we start to look at, at, at God and his, his perfection and his value? Um, what are a couple of the proper responses? And I'm giving you a little clue, but there's more to the clue than just what's up there. What are some proper responses to being in the presence of a holy God? Yeah, Paul, yeah, lay, lay low, right. That concept of worship to really lower yourself, do you know what it is? It's, 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 a, it's an image of comparison. Why? Because the lower I make myself, the higher I make whatever it is that I'm bowing in front of. So anytime you think of I'm worshiping or I'm bowing down to, literally put that in your mind that you're saying I want to, by contrast, elevate this thing. So there is a rightness to a response of being in God's holy presence to be lowered. To, to, to lay yourself low, to admire him, to lift him up. Now, does he need it? Does he say, only by comparing myself to you, am I high? No, but it's a proper response. It's not about whether or not we give him his nature, but it is a proper response to being in the presence of a holy God. What's another proper response? Now, humility is part of it, but what else might you feel if you were in the presence of a perfectly holy God? Submission, okay. What else? Whoa, do what? Okay. You want to open that up a little bit? Fear, he says. No, okay. I said what I said, and it's sufficient. I like it. I like it. Okay, yeah, awesome. Yep, awesome, very good. Yes. So... I'm not going to try to bum us out, but there's a rightness to feeling naked and ashamed and vulnerable in the presence of a holy and perfect God. Now, Christ has made a way. Don't, don't, don't get the idea that somehow we, we reject Christ. No, Christ says that we can approach the throne with confidence through him. Let that be true. But you know what else is true? That there is a rightness to feeling naked, a rightness to feeling perfectly exposed. 
I love what Michael Horton says uh, in, in The Gospel-Driven Life as a book he wrote. He said, feeling naked and ashamed is a good sign that we are actually in the presence of the God of the Bible. Sometimes we like to think of God as something other than what he is. And so sometimes we start to feel different in light of that. If we start to paint a picture of a God who is permissible, you know, giving permission in all things, that there's no objective right and wrong, and he's just, let's just have fun, and we're, you know, all is good, I have no wrath, I have no judgment, I have, in the presence of that kind of God, what are you going to feel? Pretty laid back, everything's cool, Jesus is my homeboy. That's, that's like the logical extension, isn't it? But if you start with that he is holy, that he is perfect, there is a rightness in, 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 in feeling, as, as Horton says, naked and ashamed. That's, this is a good sign that you're standing in the presence of the God of the Bible. Every time God shows up in the Bible, what's the response? Whew. Woe is me. Exactly. And that's exactly what we see in Isaiah. The foundations of the threshold shook the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of peaceful of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6, 4-5. through You know that when the Old Testament prophets would show up, they would have, they would have a proclamation. Um, and, and this is an, an interesting thing, that, that any time that they, they had a proclamation, there, there's one of two ways it could go, is it, wasn't it? When the prophet showed up? What, what's one way it could go? Okay, repentance, calling for repentance. That's that, woe, thus saith the Lord, right? What's the other one? When the angels would greet with good news. Start off with blessings, right? Like, oh, I come in peace. But there's times where they're saying, whoa, when they start out with whoa, what's interesting is Isaiah starting out with woe is me is a prophetic word on himself, a prophetic judgment on himself by contrast of standing in the presence of a completely holy God. And there's a rightness to that. And, and so we have to look at the holiness of God and, and, and we, can't, we can't divorce that um, and, and say that that's not part of what Christianity believes about God, that our God is all a God of, of, of sweet, tender mercy. He is. He is. But that does not make the proper response any less a, a response of awe and humility. And that's the beauty that this is the God we serve, that he is this powerful, that he is this big, that he is all of these things. But I want to move on and let's talk about some of the practical sides here, if we can, for just a few minutes. What would you say is the goal of the church? Bam. We're done. Let's leave. <laughs> Glorify God. Now, I'm not trying to get fired or get in trouble, but why isn't that the mission statement of every church? I, I, I'm not speaking ill of ours, it's great, but it, in me, there's, there's a certain point that it's like, almost, that should be the very first thing that we say. And I love our mission statement. We exist, right, to love all people to Christ, to equip them on their journey with God and one another. I love that. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know what? The, at the root of all of that is to bring glory to God. 
That has to be our starting point. You can't really read this very well. I need to check my font in here because it's not that bright. The glorify God through being set apart and calling others to be set apart. His will be done. Remember Jesus' prayer. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know that that is part of what it means to be the church is to be the called out ones, to be those who are set apart. So to move from this idea of perfection, which is true, but there's also a part where holiness and God's holiness means that he is so set apart. He's different then. Uh, and that's what the call of the church is, to be different then. To we, that we would be set apart. And what, what's, the, what's the proclamation? What are we calling others to do? To be set apart as well. And so that, that is the goal of the church, uh, that every believer in the church universal is to be holy as God is holy. But also we look at this, and we'll get into our scripture again. Um, 1 Peter 1.15 also comes from Leviticus 11.44. It says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So when we talk about the church, the church is obviously comprised of the body of believers, uh, universally speaking. But there is no church without the individual believer. Does that make sense? The church is universal in that it is including all of the believers, but there is no church if it doesn't have within it individual believers. So when we say the church is called to something, that means we, you, me, are called to that thing. Whenever, whenever we think about what God has for the church, He's doing that through people. And there's a beauty to that. But now let's, let's get back to our scripture here, and we'll hang out here for just a minute. In verse uh, 13 of 1 Peter, says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Then it goes into the verse, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. What does he start with in 13? Okay. And then the call is? Prepare what? Prepare your minds for action. He doesn't say prepare your minds to think about this. Prepare your minds to have a good discussion on this. He says, prepare your mind for action. So, as we've said, that there's parts of these studies that are theoretical in nature, if you will. But when we talk about holiness, there is a part that we have to see that has to be put into action. And I'm not talking about works-based salvation here. But there is a part in which when we say we are the church and the church is called to be set apart, there is action in that setting apart. And we could, we could talk about what that looks like, but premise one is that there is action. And he goes on, he says, And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is end times kinds of stuff. As obedient children... Here's another verb. Here's another action. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, he's not making a worst works-based salvation claim. He's not saying, 
work real hard and be real holy, and when you get there, you will be saved. That's not what he's talking about. But he's talking about being of a specific type of people. What type of people? As obedient children. Children of who? Children of God. There's a right way in which we are to act, modeling who? Our Father. Who's our Father? God. And there's a rightness in this because we are supposed to be like our dad, like our Father in heaven. And he says this, But as he who called you, called you, is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And this is that Leviticus 11, and we'll look at that in just a second, but I want to I ask you, we're talking about this one right here. As believers, as people, you and me, living life to, to, together and living in the real world, what does that cause us to do with these two ideas, responsibility and ability? Does God, I'm going to ask you point blank, does God expect you to be holy? Yes. I'm glad that we agree on that. I'm not even joking. I'm glad that we agree on that. He expects you to be holy. Now I want to, I want to ask you, what does it mean to be holy? It does not mean, it does not mean that we are perfect in the same way God is. We are, we are heading that direction through sanctification, but don't get hung up on that I am not holy unless I have achieved perfection because there's degrees of holiness for the believer. So there is perfectionism theology out there that says that through the power of, of Jesus, you in this life can be perfected and sin no more. There's people who actually believe that, and it's perfectionism theology. But John destroys that. He says, if you say that you have no sin, <laughs> you are a what? Liar! So, be holy, but you will always be a sinner. So how do we, how do we put these two together, God? You've told me to do this thing. You're holding me accountable for this thing. Yet clearly in your scripture you're telling me I can't do this thing. So what do we say? Do we walk away? Do we say our Christian faith is illogical? What would you say to that? You still strive. Now there's, there's a beauty in this. That what, is, what does he say right here? Uh, Verse 13, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, that means being reasonable, thinking about things correctly, set your hope fully on the grace. It isn't an either or, it's a both and. That we are called to be holy, yet our root of holiness is in grace. That literally the holiness that we ever get is Christ's holiness. Do you get that? So when we talk about holiness, there is absolutely no possibility for you and I to manufacture holiness on our own. It, 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 is, it just does not happen. So when we talk about being holy, we get holiness through Christ, through faith in Christ. 
So there is, let me just throw here, a passive element to this. What do I mean when I say passive? And I'm not looking for a technical response here, but generally speaking, what do you think I mean when I say passive? Okay, okay, that's, that's fine. So what happens when, um, when, 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 when someone really isn't engaging and they're just kind of letting things go by, right? You say they're kind of a passive person. So there is a sense in which we are passive in receiving the holiness of the righteousness of Christ, meaning that we didn't go out and earn it. But what does that mean for Christ? In his life, he, he, he lived active obedience, didn't he? Then there was passive obedience for Christ in that he went to the cross. And there's a whole lot more that could be opened up on that. But there's active obedience that he satisfied the requirements of the law for us. Passive means we didn't do that part. We are passive in that part. We were supposed to, weren't we? Were we supposed to satisfy the requirements of the law? Or were we supposed to obey God in every way? Mm-hmm. Did we? Mm-mm. Can we? Mm-mm. What do we need? Jesus. To come and actively do that. So we are passive in receiving holiness. So Christ is the root of that. But here's, here's the other side of it that the scripture does not let us go. That there is also um, a pursuit. All right? There is a fight. There is a race. And that means that there can be an active pursuit of holiness. Now, I hope, I, hope that you're, I hope that you're following with me here. Premise one, all of your holiness comes from Christ. But you're not off the hook. All throughout Scripture we see that there's a call to do things. Does those things, do those things save you? No. But let me just ask you, can you grow in holiness? Yes. Now, have you ever run into a person who professed to be perfectly holy? Have you ever? I've, I've come into some people who thought they were. No, they weren't, but they thought they were. If you can imagine, if you haven't come into contact with someone like that, how do you feel about those people? You kind of feel like they're full of it, right? Like, and, 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 and now put it, put it in your mind that there's that person who thinks that they're perfect, that they're holy, and then you get a young believer who doesn't really know, and they look at that person and they think, that's what it looks like? Well, there's one side that that can be off-putting as like, that isn't real, but there's also another part where it's like, what can it be? It can be absolutely crushing for those who are honest with themselves, and they say, I still, as John says I should, expect to have sin in my life, unfortunately. So you look at this person who's claiming to be perfect, and what is it? It's, it's, it's a discouragement to the young, weak believer. And so what we have to look at is we have to say that that is not right. Generally what happens when we are saved is Christ starts the work. What, is, what does Scripture say? I am confident in this that he, what? Who began will, say it? Yeah. Carry it on to completion. 
So there's the idea of potential and becoming. So this is a both and for us. For God, there is no potential. There is no becoming more holy than he is. But for you and me, there is a becoming. There is a potential to grow in holiness. Because that means we are becoming more like God. And I don't say that in a bad way. I say that in a way that we are being transformed to become in the image of Christ, who is God. Do you believe that? Do you believe the Holy Spirit is continuing that work inside of you? Absolutely. Can you look back and see progress? A couple of weeks ago, um, when we were preaching on this topic related to this, um, I love that idea. And this is something I told my campus, Calvary, that we should be able to look back and say, I'm better than T, uh, than, T-H-A-N, I'm better than I was. But look forward and say, I will be better than, T-H-E-N. And that's the truth of the Christian walk, is that we should be able to look back and see evidence of gradual growth in grace, gradual growth in holiness. Because not what we're doing, but because of what God is doing through us. But there's a beauty to looking at this, that there is a fight. Is there not a fight? Is there not a race to run? There is. And this is part of what we've got to wrestle with. So our daily, uh, excuse me, our duty is obedience to God who is most holy, most set apart. And when we are holy, set apart for his glory, we are pleasing to him. Do you know God is pleased when we pursue holiness? God is pleased when we pursue holiness. So um, here's a couple of ideas real quick. There's also the idea that God has within him a holy requirement for justice. So Romans 2, 5, because of your hard and unpenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 1 John 1, 5, God is light in him. There is no darkness. If we claim to have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And then this one's a big one that's been beating me up recently. Second Thessalonians says, This is the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. And he goes on, he says, And to grant relief when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, with what? His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Wait, is this the Old Testament? For real. Literally. This is what we're looking forward to. This isn't what's already happened. This is what we're looking forward to. So many people will say, man, my God's not like that. My God's not going to judge. He's cool. Or they'll say, the Old Testament, that's all that stuff. But me and Jesus, we're cool. Jesus would never do that. And it's just like, you look at this. What is he doing? Imagine Jesus coming from heaven, being revealed with what? His mighty angels. We're not talking about these little fluffy things on clouds playing harps. We're talking about warriors coming to kill, to do battle. And what is Jesus' role in this? Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. Man, if that doesn't mess you up, you're cold. I'm serious. 
So when we proclaim the gospel, be clear that this isn't signing up for a whatever-you-want-to-do type of deal here. There is a coming judgment. And I have to reemphasize over and over, Christ is the root of our holiness. He is the one who saved us and continues to sanctify us through the work of the Holy Spirit. But for us, there is a fight, there is a race, and there is active obedience. So when you see this, it says, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Man, we don't have time to open that, but it means that you can't just stop. It means that there is an active role to this. The gospel is a command. And we've mentioned it several times, but it's always good to bring it back up. When Jesus was giving the Great Commission, do you remember in Matthew 28, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, not the names, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what does he say? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Obey Jesus? Jesus is cool with whatever I want to do. But that's, that is a 21st century armchair Christianity mentality. The Jesus of the Bible, the God of the Bible, who is perfectly holy, has also called us to be holy. He has called us to walk in the light as he is in the light. He has called us to be set apart. Now, here I am saying this. I have not mastered this. I have bad stuff in my life, probably like you do. But I don't really care if you do or not, because I know my own heart. But this is the gospel, that he saves sinners like you and me. That he saw it fit to come save ungodly, unholy people. To do what with them? To make them holy. He's doing the work. He gets the glory. But there's a part of it that the proper response is that then we follow through praising him. So I asked these couple of questions. How might we see God as holy as we start to wind down? How might we see God as holy? How, how could you see God as holy? What are some proper things for you this week to put in your mind to see God as holy? You know, one of the things I just want to throw out there, when we think about seeing God as holy, that entails in part coming to his word and getting a clear idea of who he is, but also correcting ourselves and saying, shame on me if I ever say that this is what God wants or what God would like or what God is okay with if I can't come to scripture and find that out. His holiness is bound up in his perfection and his nature and in his precepts. We learn a lot about the holiness of God and his precepts. Now, for, for a little fun, and I say fun, but it's interesting. Go back to Leviticus 11 real quick with me. Everyone probably spends most of their quiet time in Leviticus. That's where all the good, pithy stuff is. The Max Lucado quality, get your heart warmed up type of stuff. 
when First Peter's quoting here, he says, For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He's referring back to Leviticus 11. Um, well, let's take a look at this. And I like what uh, Al Mohler said. I, I listened to a sermon by Al Mohler today on this, and it was pretty funny. And he said, I'm going to tell you that this is a command that you can obey. I'm just going to tell you that right away, that every one of us can obey. And it's kind of, it's like, once you get into it, you'll be like, yep. So here's the command. Verse 41 of, of chapter 11 of Leviticus. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable and shall not be eaten. Probably got that one down, right? It's like, it's like of all the commands that God's given us, that's probably one we can, most of us check off, right? It says, whatever goes on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourself detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourself with them and become unclean through them, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You may be tempted to say, well, that's a really weird way to define holiness by not eating some bugs. But do you get that the Old Testament in large is about setting a people apart? And this, this not eating bugs wasn't like some miracle thing. It's like if you don't eat the bugs, then you get some more sanctification juice. It isn't, it isn't like that. But there was a rightness in small steps. Do you get that? That God sometimes just gives us small steps of obedience. I don't know how hard it was. I can't put myself there. But I have no temptation to go look at some swarming thing and pick it up and eat it. So I feel like that's a pretty easy one, God. Thank you. A lot of the things you ask me to do are tough. That's an easy one. But here's the point. God calls us to do things. And sometimes they are small steps of obedience. Now, I wrote a number down over here, and you're probably wondering, what in the world does 84% stand for? And I have not been told to say this, and Chris doesn't even know, so maybe I'm in trouble after this, but I'm okay with it. 84%. 84%. I have been struggling with this number. What if I told you that that 84% represented our church, and it does. 84%. What if I told you that 84% of the active members in our church, First Baptist Owasso, were on a weekly basis getting smash face drunk? Would you have a problem with that? What if I told you that 84% of our congregation was engaging in active adultery, unrepentant adultery. Would you have a problem with that? Would you, would, you, would you say to me and Chris and other leaders that we should address that? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you expect that? And I'm going to drop this, but I'm not saying it to get onto you, but this is something that's been breaking my heart. This actually represents the portion of our church that is an act of rebellion against God and tithing. 16% of all of our ministries, I mean, our, our, all of our ministries are funded by only 16% of our membership. That literally means 84% of the people who call First Baptist Owasso their home are not tithing. And I'm not here to ask you for your money. God doesn't, 
It's about obedience. Are we obedient? So I'm sitting here all week thinking about this, 84%, and I'm not, I'm not slapping anyone's hands. My heart's got plenty of things wrong with it, but I can't help but look at this and think about how we're going to talk about holiness, and we can't do a baby step of obeying God with our money. 84%, that tells you something's wrong with our heart. I don't know if that's you in this room. That you know what people who usually show up like this usually, it's like you're you're bought in. So I'm I'm not I'm not preaching at you. I'm just I'm just sharing a heart moment with you. That if we truly take God's word serious, and He says to obey Him, and we pick and choose where we're going to obey Him, something is wrong with our hearts. Something is wrong. And that happens to be the topic. I don't care what it is. That's why I threw out the other examples. But we have a tendency to say, yeah, but that's not that important so I can disobey God. But I want to challenge you. And I'm, I'm putting the same thing on myself. God, show me the ways in which I am disobedient to you. Let me ask you, if you knew directly where you were disobedient, would you not feel the need to address that? Thank you for saying that. I'm not joking. Thank you for saying Because if we have that heart, God will do something. But if we say, even if you show me where I'm wrong, God, I'm not sure I'm going to do what you tell me to. There's a part in which we have to be broken down. And I'm not beating us up right now. I'm saying let that be our heart, that if our God is holy, if he is pure, if he's good, if he has our best interest in mind, let's be obedient to him. And he's given us small steps, like don't eat bugs. <laughs> That's one. <laughs> we can do that one. I want to I wanna, I wanna close up with an idea from J.C. Ryle. Um, there is, these, these are the books that I'm recommending. One is Holiness of God from R.C. Sproul, which is great. J.C. Ryle, Holiness. Uh, and then another one, Who Needs Theology. Um, and these, these are on your, out, your, your handouts as well. But J.C. Ryle, uh, <laughs> this book, you, you, you could read it at your own risk. It'll mess you up. But it's so good. So good. And he, he doesn't come at it like, oh, you terrible people. He gives the preacher's balm, if you will. He gives, he gives ointment. He, he binds up the broken. But he, pr he pushes us forward with biblical concepts to pursue holiness. And, 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 I, and I, love, I love this idea. I don't love it in one way because it's convicting, but I love it in another way. He, he's listing a couple of things for the cost of being a true Christian. And the first one, he says, Christianity will cost one his self-righteousness. He starts there. He says he must cast away all pride and high thoughts and conceit of his own goodness. He must be content to go to heaven as a poor sinner saved by free grace, owing all to the merit and righteousness of another. Do you see yourself that way? Man, there's something right in that. Well, it is right. That we go to heaven by the merit of another, Jesus. So we are cured of self-righteousness if we are so tempted to do that. Then he goes on to, true Christianity will cost a man his sins. 
He must be willing to give up every habit and practice which is wrong in God's sight. He must set his face against it, quarrel with it, break off from it, fight with it, crucify it, and labor to keep it under control. Whatever the world around him may say or think, he must do this honestly and fairly. There must be no secret truce with any special sin which he loves. And he goes on, he says, sometimes our sins are like our children. We love them, we cherish them, we hug them. Man, let us be holy for God is holy. Let us strive to do as 1 Peter says, to be obedient children, not conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but as God has called us to be holy, to be holy in our conduct. Does anybody have anything to say on that? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's a whole, there's a whole debate on that lordship, lordship salvation. But I, but I agree with you that there is, there's, there's a way in which a proper view of Jesus Christ is, you're the boss. You bought me. You own me. That's literally what the gospel is. Anybody have any questions or comment? I've been talking a lot. Yeah. It really is, because there's a sense in which we have to struggle with scriptures like um, Hebrews 12, 14. says, strive for peace and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And there, there, is a, there, is a, there is a rightness to that striving, even though we know that, as John says, we're going to sin. Um, it, that, that there is going to be this constant struggle. As Paul lays it out, he says, he says, I don't do what I want to. And there's a whole, you know, Romans, I mean, it's just clear as day that that's going to be a struggle. But there's also the other side that those who are holy will see the Lord. And so one of the things that I'm, I, I want to leave us with, I want this on your mind, and I want to ask you, this has turned into more of a sermon than I intended. <laughs> Forgive me. I want to ask you, think through this with me. Do you want to see the Lord? Do you want to see the Lord? I do. There's been times in my life where I haven't. There's been times in my life where I want to do only what I wanted to do. And even though I thought, I, I think I was saved in those moments, I didn't really want to see the Lord. But I'm striving through this. I'm thinking through this. And I invite you into the struggle with me. Do you want to see the Lord? Because it's something I've been finding lately to help me in, my, in, 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 in this fight because it's hard. It, for anyone who has true sin in their life, which I think every one of us does, but some of us can really, really relate to that pull. You can relate to those peaks and those valleys, can't you? Those days of great victory and success and saying, man, I about licked this thing that I've been fighting for years. And then, boom, the next day you're like, the fire, the heat, the intensity, you're like, what? 
But that is the, the, the peaks and the valleys that the Christian life is lined out with. But I want us to think, do we want to see the Lord? Because in those temptations, in those dark times, as Jesus says to watch and to pray, what are we watching for? We're watching for where the enemy will come. And how does he work? He comes when we're weak and when we're isolated, and there's a lot of other things. But then to pray. But there's a promise that with this pursuit, we will see the Lord. And man, I think that's a taste of heaven here on earth, that there is a rightness to that. There's more to heaven to be enjoyed on earth than many Christians are realizing. We can see Jesus more here. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait to get to heaven. You can see him now. But our unrepentant sins keep us from that. And I'm going to stop preaching. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you have saved us while we were yet dead in our trespasses. And God, that we aren't using our holiness as a measure of whether or not we're truly saved because we anchor to the biblical truth that we are saved by grace through faith, that it is your work that has saved us. It is your work that keeps us saved. But God, crush us if we believe in any part that we can live in active disobedience to you and actually see the Lord. God, I pray for First Baptist. I pray for this church. We are all a member of this biblical community that you have called us to in this time. And while we are comprised of imperfect people, we are all sinners saved by grace. I pray, God, that you continue to make it apparent and clear in the ways that we are going astray in our personal lives. I pray that we will pursue personal holiness and that through our individual pursuits, because we want to see you, that we as a church collective will be holy and pleasing and effective in the ministry you've called us to. For we realize, even though we forget it and sometimes, that our sins keep us from being effective in the ministry and work you've called us to do. So God, I pray that, I pray you give us a sweetness to fight the good fight, not because we are scared, but because we love you, not because we are afraid we're going to lose our salvation if we're not good enough, but because we love you and we want to see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.